All you have to do is drive the time vehicle directly toward that screen, accelerating 88 miles an hour. Wait a minute, Doc. If I drive straight towards the screen, I'm going to crash into those Indians. Marty, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. They'll instantly be transported to 1885, and those Indians won't even be there. Right. Well, good luck for both of our sakes. See you in the future. You mean the past? Exactly. Boys and girls, it's time for Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast that goes rootin' and tootin' through the canyons of Amblin' Entertainment. I am one half of your host, Andy Godian. I'm not going to do that for the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the other half, Joshua Glam. <laughs> and today we have lassoed our good buddy and fellow Warwick grad, Robin Karenson, coming to you live from France to join us in... For- Join us for our discussion of Back to the Future Part 3. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. <laughs> Hello. Nice to be here. <laughs> I think you're the first international guest we've had. No. I no think way. so. You, you must have had Americans. No? No, they but were they were in, in England. Based in England when they were recording. So I think you're just the first. I uh, see. Yeah. <laughs> cross first channel. Overseas. Piping what? in from the... European shores. I've recorded from Alderney before, so I don't know if that counts. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. Does that count? I'd like to think it does oh, in a way. <laughs> but first guest, anyway. <laughs> How are you boys both doing? It's good to see you to talk about this <laughs> wild sci fi mm. Western yarn. <laughs> Ah, oh, silly little dopey sci-fi western. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this film. I was a little bit worse for the wear last night, as the notes that I took for this film will attest. I want to share some of those with you boys later on. But I was saying to Rob before we started, uh, the thought of this at the end of the day, it pulled me through. It pulled me through like um, a train. It pushed me pushed, through, rather, yeah. like a train. <laughs> Behind it pushed you over the ravine of the day. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into the Back to the Future Part Three of it, Part Three of it all, uh, Robert Zemeckis's trilogy capper from 1990. Uh, Robin, what does Amblin mean to you? And what are some of the kind of films that really typify what is Amblin Entertainment? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, this is the question I probably dreaded the most coming onto this podcast. <laughs> it's like, I feel like I have to arrive with this like uh, storied uh, history of me and Amblin <laughs> through the years. But um, 
I don't know. One thing that I I think I knew when I met you, the two of you, <laughs> is that I didn't really have that much of a a childhood that was really steeped in in Amblin. Um, so mm-hmm. Jurassic Park and mm-hmm. and the Back to the Future films were really the the two that kind of like whittled down. Obviously, I was aware of E.T. and some of the other like really big names, um, but seeing it as a coherent whole as being from one studio that wasn't really something that um was on my radar until you know i started to get a lot more into movies and things um so now i guess looking back obviously i can see the kind of the through line but it's a lot of kind of a childhood that i didn't have i think you know Mm -hmm. something about et being missing from um from i don't know whatever (laughs) age i'm supposed to arrive at et um, and that probably leads you on to the other question that I'm dreading. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the preamble before that is, I know you're a man who regularly cries, much like myself, at visual media. Because yeah. I remember there was one, because Robin and I listeners lived together in first year and second year, in fact, of uni. And there's one distinct memory I've got of, of you and me in my in my room in halls in first year, watching a compilation of sad moments from Scrubs <laughs> and just crying to ourselves. <laughs> do you remember that? Why did you do that to yourselves, boys? <laughs> <laughs> I don't that's, know. that's not one that sticks in the so mind, but that's definitely that definitely <laughs> sounds like us. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, do you cry at ET? No, I um, ET uh, to kind of mirror what Dan said when you asked him um, on the previous Back to the Future installment. Like I, I get ET. Like I get um, moved by ET. I just don't know what point at which I'm supposed to to cry. Yeah, uh, during that film, Wait, yeah, when do people you have their cry different at points, ET, Josh? <laughs> oh man, several times really. I kind of start when ET is dead, and then I cry right. again when he comes back what? to life. And then, he goes, <laughs> and then the bit that really makes me blubber until the end is when they're being chased by the feds, and there's the road blockade, and uh, they think, "Oh no, we're gonna crash." I've done this, Alan Parker, <laughs> and they think they're gonna crash into the blockade. And then suddenly they take off and and the music soars and that's when I'm like, oh, I'm going, I'm going. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like that until the very end. But it's that thing we've been talking about before and I had a similar reaction to parts of this film too. It's when, like uh, the example we used with Harley was when in Endgame when um, Captain America starts using the hammer mm. and you sort of have those giddy tears when something's working really yeah. well. So I will often cry, not through sadness, but just through joy at seeing something. Ah, components. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, this has done well. It's it's just, just, uh, I'm so that's mainly happy what for these filmmakers right now. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, and for us for having this gift. Ah, uh, so before we get like, I, I'm keen to hear your closer relationship with the trilogy and Zemeckis himself as well. But before we get into that, I think it's best to. For young Joshua Glenn to set the picture for <laughs> Back to the Future Part Three. So after you, young Glenn. <laughs> hey, I do feel bad that uh, I, I gave you Part Two to do the synopsis for. Then I took this much, much, <laughs> much more streamlined simpler. movie. <laughs> <laughs> so Back to the Future Part Three. We last saw Marty undoing the hard-won victory at the end of the first film by telling the 1955 Doc that he's back. He's back from the future. Once 1955 Doc regains consciousness after a very understandable fainting, 
Marty informs him that 1985 Doc was struck by lightning in the DeLorean and thrust back to 1885, much to the delight of the Old West living scientist. Together they work through 1985 Doc's letter, which, at this point, is 70 years old, which tells them where they can find and repair the DeLorean so that Marty can get himself back to the future once and for all, and perhaps involve Jennifer in one of his adventures instead of leaving her on the porch. <laughs> uh, 1985 Doc himself has no desire to be rescued from the Old West, according to his letter, which he sees as a sweet way to spend his retirement. On their way to the cave in which the DeLorean is stored, though, Marty and 1955 Doc notice a gravestone declaring Emmett Brown's death as uh, six days after the letter was written, killed by Buford Mad Dog Tannen over a matter of $80. And thus, a plan is set in motion for Marty to take the DeLorean back to 1885 and bring contemporary Doc, or his contemporary Doc, back to his native time and save him from his grisly demise. Unfortunately, though, Upon arriving in Monument Valley, the DeLorean takes an arrow to the fuel tank and, for all intents and purposes, strands Doc and Marty deep in the past. And on top of having to figure out how to get the time machine to 88 miles per hour in the absence of a sufficient fuel source and having to avoid the itchy trigger finger of Mad Dog Tannen, there's also the matter of Doc falling head over heels in love for rescued schoolteacher Clara Clayton, played by Mary Steenburgen. Will Doc and Marty manage to find a way to get back to the future? Or, perhaps most pertinently, will Doc even want to? Oh. <laughs> I want to find out what I happens I didn't next. Say the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't say the actor names in this synopsis, I realised that, but you know by now who plays yeah. who. You know, you know, you know who plays We're free in now. <laughs> New edition, Mary Steenburgen. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yes. So, uh, easier one to synopsize than, than you had last time, Andy, for sure. Probably less fun, though, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, less of, less of a challenge. Andy, you did do an amazing job on the Back to the Future 2 episode on that synopsis. It's just like, it's, it's such a messy film. Um, and having that synopsis to go through, rather than having to watch it in preparation for this, uh, did save me quite a lot of time. Well, I'm it's like untangling it Christmas lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, when did you first come to meet the Back to the Future trilogy and get to know the adventures of Marty and Dot Robin? It's one of those ones where, like, it seemed to always exist, right? Um, there was something mm. I have this. I have this memory of asking uh, my dad, or being kind of like this pedantic child, or who's always trying to work out. Um, what things meant you know i had awful trouble with words generally but when i first heard the title back to the future um because it must have been coming up on itv or something uh, yeah. i said to my dad but you you can't go back to the future you go forwards <laughs> to the future and he's like oh no but what if you were from the future and uh, that's my earliest memory of this film, oh, is having my, having my mind blown by this concept that you, you could potentially go back to the future if you'd already been there. Um, and, and then from there, I, I don't know when I really first watched it in full, but um, I, I think my, my memory of these films is of, of it being just like, lots of different bits right like marty and doc kind of exist in this this world of flying cars and um horse chasers and it's never quite clear which one is which film was which i think until um till i kind of hit my teenage years um where 
a friend of mine, Michael, um, we loved these films, or he loved these films rather, and uh, we discussed kind of the ins and outs of each of them. And I remember one conversation about the MacGuffins um, from each of the films. <laughs> Do you have a particular favourite of the trilogy as well? Is there one that is head and shoulders? Because I know a lot of people will go for one, but two has, two has its fans. <laughs> Some people like yeah. this one more as well. <laughs> Although I'm not sure yeah, I've ever met I... someone who said this is their favourite. <laughs> No, no. I I remember when we watched these back at university. Um, we had like a, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was over the course of the week as a group. We watched all three of them. Yeah. Um, and I think I think when we came around to this one, we paused it halfway through and went to get a curry. Yeah. Um, to Leamington Spa, we did. Which is like a four-hour foray. Um, and then came back <laughs> and all yeah. watched the end of the film. <laughs> which, yeah, which I it was a delight. amazing. Um, but I remember around, <laughs> around then, uh, Jack Jack Buckley, who was on for, is it for, who framed Roger Rabbit? Roger yeah. Rabbit. Roger. Um, yeah. Jack said this was his favourite. I remember that, and I was always like, "Ooh, that's a very Jack opinion to have." Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it I is. wasn't aware of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I don't know if it was favourite overall or favourite of the sequels, but I I remember at the time being like, "You're mad." The second one is definitely <laughs> definitely the the best. Um, it's the most outlandish, right? Um, but yeah, no, I think uh, Heart of Hearts, Back to the Future is is one of those films where someone asks me. Um, what my favorite film is, you know, it's like I don't want to say Back to the Future because it feels too obvious, but it's such a good mm-hmm. film. It's just, <laughs> it's perfect in what it is. Um, so that's yeah. really my favorite. And I think coming back to, um, back to parts two and three, three just being the more complete complete film. It's just the easier watch. Um, that would probably be yeah. my my second my favorite of the sequels. How about uh, Robert Zemeckis himself? Is he someone you like looking over his filmography? Is it something that you've got a lot a lot checked off there, or is it more kind of known for the bigger hits more than anything else? Yeah, yeah, he's definitely one like who I knew, know for his bigger hits. You know, everything that came before Back to the Future, I don't really know. Um, used cars and uh, what, what was his other? Um, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. That's really good. That's really fun. That, that sounds exactly up my street, but um, yeah, I've, it's <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, I've checked out. Um, and then yeah, it's later work. The the Forrest Gumps and the Polar Express. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, that's something I've season? seen. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, we got it. <laughs> I've seen the the sort of the Tom Hanks trilogy with those and um, and Castaway. Mm. Yeah, I think um, Castaway is just something which was always on TV. It seemed to be every couple of weeks yeah. you could you could catch that when i was growing up um but yeah uh overall like zemeckis for me he's the back to the future uh fella and i think that's well that's definitely my entry point with with who he is yeah what's your general impression of him as a blockbuster filmmaker or like in general just a hollywood player i think like he has this kind of untouchable run right from um, mm. from mm-hmm. Back to the Future until, um, you know, well into Castaway, Forrest Gump, like everything there um, works on some level, but the, the blockbusters really, really smash it. And then later on, he's the CGI Polar Express man. And yeah. the idea of him like... Trapped in the uncanny yeah, valley. Yeah, yeah, he's very, 
um very happy to, <laughs> to just like dive into yeah we can we can cgi someone's face it looks like a video game but worse um so all right yeah i'll make a film out of that and you want to see yeah, ray winston but him... buff <laughs> <laughs> oh man I, like it's still not one i've seen the beowulf um I quite, I quite I like, like Beowulf, Beowulf actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I think it's pretty good fun. I think Beowulf had this like beautiful thing of coming out just around the time when Beowulf was covered at school with us, which like right. is about a, a uh... week long, right? It's like yeah, there was this dude called Beowulf. He didn't like the Anglo Saxons. He died. <laughs> like, and it's like, oh, and, and there's a film, and it's Back to the Future guy, and it's like oh, I want to go see it. It's like I do not meet the uh, the the rating on that. Um, cannot go to watch Beowulf. What a shame! And then I've never really thought about it again um, yeah. until, until kind of looking up what's in Zemeckis's filmography and being like, ah, that exists. Yeah. yeah. But you look, you look at it and think it exists. But can it? Can it exist? This is a weird, weird artifact. Can it really exist? Yeah. If I try and watch it, will it just crumble into ash? It's, so, it's such a weird movie. Weird and like, aggressively horny. It's a really quite uncomfortable experience for a lot of it, but it's definitely worth checking out. It feels out. like Joshy won't rest until like aggressively horny becomes the, the top phrase that like Google suggests. Robert aggressively when horny you... Zemeckis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Robert Zemeckis. Do you mean Robert Zemeckis aggressively horny? <laughs> that's all right yeah it's a mission from god did you watch the did you watch the trilogy or can you remember whether you watched them all all three at once or was Uh, it like because i remember coming coming to part three a bit later after the fact that i'd seen part one yeah like like i said that that friend at school like we we discussed at length the MacGuffins and like what each issue is in time periods and all of the the kind of like the top trump cards kind of summary of each of these films mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i think around that time we we watched them back you know he had them all on uh on dvd so i think by when i did see them in complete like not back to the future which i you know is always on tv always always around um but when i came to the sequels i think i did watch them kind of in quite close proximity to each other um and then i don't think i watched either of them again until we had that kind of um back to the future party <laughs> where we where we uh, watched them all over <laughs> yeah watched them all over the course of a week i think always a good time Always a good time, <laughs> and it was a bit later for you, Andy. This one, this came a bit late in the day. Yeah, I think I for young Mister. I think Go I young. said it back in the the part two episode with Dan. Like the first one, I mm-hmm. can remember watching around the age of eight, eight or nine, and then I didn't see these ones until three or four years later down the line. Again, when they were on ITV uh, on mm-hmm. a Sunday afternoon. As is the <laughs> the programming of Amblin films <laughs> on television in general across the uh, uh, early noughties. <laughs> uh, sim- simpler times. Mm. I think the the chain chain oh, train, train set piece mm. at the end of the, the third movie. I think that's the first thing I ever saw of any Back to the Future oh, really? thing. I caught that. Yeah, and for a long time, that's what I thought Back to the Future was. Trains. And, um, <laughs> just, yeah, men running along trains. Color-coded smoke. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
And then, yeah. But then I struggled to find... Yeah, I saw the end first before anything else in Back to the Future. Then, of course, I saw the first two a lot. But the third one seemed to be much more sporadically on TV. And it took me years to track it down and watch it in its entirety. Because you couldn't just... You couldn't just Google, uh, let me watch Back to the Future 3 back then. You had to wait, didn't you? <laughs> you did, yeah. I remember the first DVD copy I had of the trilogy, I'd accidentally bought a Region 1 copy. So I, I used to just like mm. switch the region on my laptop so I could watch the Back to the Future trilogy. <laughs> 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 Nothing else, just the Back to the Future trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Is it you, Josh, who was saying it was your first physical media, Back to the Future? It was my first DVD. I was I was reluctant to make the jump from VHS to DVD because I thought videos were better because they were heavier. And I thought, DVDs are never going to carry on because they're not as heavy as videos. Videos are better because they're heavier than DVDs. But then, because I'm, I'm pretty sure, Back to the Future, I don't think... Because you know videos could be discontinued. So mm. like for in the 90s, sometimes you just genuinely couldn't find a film because... Um, it wasn't in print anymore. I, that's one of the reasons that I couldn't find Inner Space for so long because it, it weren't releasing it on video anymore. And I'm sure Back to the Future, when we were sort of coming of age as little cinema nerds, I'm sure you couldn't get it on video. So when it was released on DVD, that was the first time it was made available in our lifetimes on physical media. So that's what... I wonder if there was a lazy... I think, disc- if I remember. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there must have been a lazy... But yeah, that's that's... Yeah. <laughs> and I remember watching the, like milking those bonus features on the DVDs dry and like seeing all the making of docs and the deleted scenes. I never knew there was such a thing as a deleted scene before <laughs> that DVD box set. And it's so exciting discovering new little fragments of things that you know weren't quite mm. there. It's very cool. And that's a tangent, Robin. Can you remember what your first DVD was? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can. It's not good. Um, it was a birthday of mine. Um, I want to say eleventh or twelfth birthday, and I got a like DVD TV combi. Remember those things? They were massive. Oh yeah, you know, it was like, a, big, a big cube of um, like in you know in Josh's mind, it's probably very valuable because it was so heavy. So much heavier than <laughs> like that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Like trying to move it from one end of the room to the other as an eleven-year-old boy <laughs> just didn't work. And the DVD <laughs> that um, I got with it was the day after tomorrow, and hey. I, oh, I therefore god. watched this film like quite often. You know, it's like oh, I want to, I want to watch a film. What do I have? One DVD. It's the day after tomorrow, <laughs> and I got very used to just like Jake Gyllenhaal as uh, as this uh, yeah just angsty uh, teenager, and uh, it turns out there's there's a whole genre of that. So um, I <laughs> across some of his other work. <laughs> What's funny is it's not even a particularly good example of that genre of the day after tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but the world. Ends. I don't think anyway. I haven't seen it in such a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's good. Maybe it's good. I don't know. It's been a long, long time since I've seen that film. I, I, I remember it being okay. Yeah. Hot Dennis Quaid dad. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Amblin alumni. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> well, to roll the clock back a bit to, well, the summer of 1989. Um, we'll pick up the production notes here. Of course, as we discussed in our episode on part two. Part three was shot back to back with uh, its predecessor. 
1989, with the genesis of the Western idea seemingly coming from both discussions had on the original production of the first movie where like particularly Zemeckis and Bob Gale would uh, spitball ideas of the cast and crew about what sort of time periods, if you could time travel, uh, you would enjoy going back to. And Michael J. Fox at the time said he wanted to, he would like to go visit the old West and hang out with cowboys. Um, and this is something that Zemeckis and Bob Gale uh, also had an affinity for, having grown up on kind of 50s and 60s Western TV shows and uh, the oeuvre of John Ford movies that kind of really are the staple of uh, what is the equivalent of blockbuster American filmmaking, really, in that in that period of when mm-hmm. they would have been growing up. Um, so part three shot over the course... Shot with the second one over the course of 11 months, save for a three-week hiatus between the p- filmings of part two and three, so that they could uh, really kind of collect themselves, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, for the most grueling part of this whole production, seemed to be kind of like largely f- fell a bit on uh, Zemeckis more than anyone else. Um, as, <laughs> as I'm sure you guys also read, he was... Uh, whilst he was shooting most of, like, particularly the final sequence, he would wrap photography, board a plane back to Calif- uh, Burbank, California, where he would go and oversee what work had been done on the edit of part two, uh, make any changes, stay for a night in a lovely Sheraton hotel before having to catch, <laughs> catch another <laughs> flight back early in the morning to go back to Northern California to oversee the rest of the shoot of the third movie. So while that does sound kind of Shit, does sound kind of grueling, uh, I also quite like hearing s- stories from the cast and even Zemeckis himself saying like shooting something like a western um, in this capacity where they are going out to the kind of like a bit more uh, secluded areas in Northern California rather than in a studio backlot where they are kind of away from everything else is a, mo- mo- a lot more of a kind of quiet, serene. Uh, environment than it mm-hmm. would have been in the universal backlot shooting scenes in 2015 as i'm sure you can imagine <laughs> yeah uh, so, like even fox himself said whenever they weren't shooting you just go off and fish and uh <laughs> everyone just learning to ride horses <laughs> sounds like a lot of stunt work stunt performers at this time were really keen to get involved in the shooting of this simply because it was a western because you think back to that yes. this period in american cinema there's not really that many westerns that are kind of out at this similar time, but it's no again going to be such a foundational uh, genre for so many of these people working in Hollywood at this yeah. time that to get the opportunity to shoot one, and particularly one that yeah. is uh, kind of like it, it's so like it, it loves how old fashioned the kind of techniques are towards mm-hmm. like putting on this sort of production where you have these kind of. Uh, sets up in the town just that that look kind of deliberately incomplete but kind of like flat on one side or <laughs> so you got yeah, like yeah. this facsimile of a old west town <laughs> uh, and for for those sets the uh, filmmakers built uh built it all from scratch and shot on location in oak park california and of course monument valley as well is where we kind of get introduced into this setting to really kind of lay down the the John Fordness of it all, <laughs> so, uh, and some of the rest of the location that shooting was done around Jamestown and on purpose-built sets in Red Hills Ranch, Serrano, California. 
uh, with some of the train scenes being shot at Railtown and uh, 1897 State Historic Park, um, which has a heritage line that which the, apparently they were also considering using for a sequence from part one that got deleted after budget concerns. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So it was going to be, they were going to use this train line for a scene where Marty escapes Biff and the the bullies by cutting over a railway line and get that classic old like cut train cuts them off and mm-hmm. can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But, uh, too expensive. It's a good bit. <laughs> <thing. laughs> um, when it came to the casting for the film, as Josh highlighted there at top, the most kind of significant player in uh, being added to the cast this time out was Mary Steenburgen as Clark Clara. Uh, who very much adds, adds the, that more kind of spiritual romantic feeling that I think really characterizes this installment. Uh, it was a role very much specifically written for her in mind. Um, and funnily enough, <laughs> she had also done a time travel film, uh, her second film, in fact, Time After Time in 1979, was her first foray into kind of time travel sci-fi stories. And I, I really want to see this movie now because the concept sounds mad. Yeah, me too. It's, uh, it's about uh, H.G. Wells time traveling so he can hunt down Jack the Ripper. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that, that's what it's that's about. That's made. I hadn't read that. That's incredible. Malcolm Wild. McDowell plays H.G. Wells and David Warner's Jack the Ripper. <laughs> oh my God. And apparently and, there's a, and... there is a... Sorry, go ahead, Robin. I was just going to say, did... Cindy Lauper do the soundtrack. <laughs> Just a really like Victor- Victorian vi- version of uh, Time After Time. <laughs> <laughs> when you're lost and you look, then you will find Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, that's a good, funny thing to imagine. <laughs> a-, a film which apparently also shares a scene where she falls in love with the time traveler and he has to explain uh, where he's from. And she equally has a moment of disbelief as she does in this film. Aside from that, you got a lot of the same uh, characters coming, uh, uh, actors coming back to portray both the same characters and also the <laughs> previous generation, shall we say. So you've got Thomas F. Wilson back as Mad Dog Tannen. And you've got Leah Thompson back as uh, Marty McFly's uh, and one of Marty McFly's ancestors. Um, you're my, you're my, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> but both her and Michael J. Fox doing somewhat questionable Irish accents <laughs> as the first McFly's in America. <laughs> what was the meaning of that? It's right in front of him. It's right in front of him. Oh, you let him go, you boy. You let him go, you aunt. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> I'll even give you a hat. <laughs> He's all out now. I'm sure there's going to be quite a few more bad Irish accents in this in this episode, to which we apologise, Dan. Oh, there's going to be more. Yeah. Well, no, but it's fine, though, because we're doing bad Irish accents based on the film. So it, was, it was a good bad Irish accent. The film accent. needs to apologise yeah. to Dan. <laughs> and even behind the camera, Zemeckis uh, brings back a lot of the same players who, of course, would have been deep in the production of part two anyway uh alan Silvestri is given a lot more i would say space to write something a bit more different a bit different for the trilogy here by being given the room to do a full-blown romantic western score uh dean cundy the cinematographer 
called the film uh, a dream to work on, uh, who equally had uh, shared a lot of the crew's excitement to be shooting a Western. Um, and for the visual effects as well, ILM are, ILM are back, as is uh, West Takashi, once again returning to animate the DeLorean time travel sequences. And the, uh, I guess, the steamer train time travel sequences as well. <laughs> yeah. You can't have a film set in the old West without Wes. Hit the first four letters of his Very name. <laughs> what are they? First three letters. Wes. Oh, you're going for the T of Takashi no, as well. No, but the first letter for the surname as well, yeah. Yeah. You can't spell Old West without Wes T. <laughs> Did you have that written in your notes? <laughs> no, no, I just I was just looking at his name written down in my notes and thought, oh, oh yeah, West. it's West. I'm gonna say that now. I'm gonna make sure that I'm gonna make sure I say that. I was, and that it is the hers. whole inspiration for the it's like what should we do? <laughs> it probably we was. could say that in the earth. No, that's nothing. <laughs> Please do continue, yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh shooting largely went rather smoothly. Uh, although Zemeckis was having to do a lot of the yo-yoing in between the edit of part two and the shooting of this. And sadly, Michael J. Fox's father passed away during production, which uh, they did allow time to for him to go home for his family. But also on, a, on the lighter side of that, he also welcomed his uh, first son uh, during the production of this as well. Um the film was released six months after part two. So part two was released in the November of 89. And this got given a May 25th release in 1990. Um, it was the first film to feature the brand new 75th anniversary Universal logo. Um, so... I did notice that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it opened to $23 million in its first weekend in the US, uh, going on to make a total of 243 million worldwide a bit less than both one and two mm-hmm. um i think a lot of people at the time i i can't remember what i i was <laughs> i was trawling through the bonus material and like some articles to try and figure out where i'd heard this from but i couldn't find it but like i i'm pretty sure i've read somewhere that some people were just maybe slightly put off by the cliffhanger ending of part two and not quite knowing what to expect and the fact that like, six months really isn't that long for a film to kind of kind of no. get out of the cultural consciousness and then to want that hunger again, which is something that has happened to a lot of films that have done similarly uh, with this approach. Like, like yeah. Revolutions had a took a lot less money than The Matrix Reloaded, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both excellent films. <laughs> but you know, speak, speaking of films that have struggled to do that, did, did they not, you know, with the Divergent series? Oh, they just stopped. Did, didn't they yes. just not bother doing the last one? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, they did three out of four books or something like that, or, you know, two and a half out of three. I don't know how many there were, but it's just kind of funny to me that they took such a swing, left it dangling, and this was, it was all the nah. hunger. <laughs> yeah. We don't want this. I don't think anyone yeah. involved was that poffered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but critically, it, it was uh, better received than part two was, um, with Leonard Malton at the time saying he preferred it to both one and two. So there you go. Here's someone who likes, uh, <laughs> likes this one more. Insane. Uh, giving it three and a half stars out of four, saying that it offered great fun, dazzling special effects, and imagination to spare. While on the flip side, Roger e- our old friend Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times 
uh, gave it two and a half out of four, saying that he found the film's Western motifs a bit of a sitcom version that looks like it was as if it were built on a back lot somewhere. Which, to I say, Mr. Ebert, I think that was kind of the point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then you got the take from our good pal Vincent Campbell, who's rapidly becoming one of my mortal enemies on this podcast, who called it so sweet-natured and bland that it's almost instantly forgettable. (laughs) What a joyless joyless little man he is. Does he not know about a sad little life, Vincent? Like, <laughs> flying time travel you train. You point me to another film that has a flying time travel train. <laughs> it's <iconic>. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone knows there's a flying train. Like, <laughs> if, if you find a flying time traveling train instantly forgettable, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you've got to look at yourself in the mirror, Vincent. Doc, you're going to get shot on Monday. I know, I know, I know. I wish. Wait. I've got it! We can simply roll it down a steep hill. No, we never find a smooth enough surface. Unless, of course, ice will wait until winter when the lake freezes over. Winter? Doc, what are you talking about? Monday, it's three days away. All right, all right, all right. Just let's think this thing through logically. We know it won't run under its own power. We know we can't pull it. But if we could figure out a way to push it up to 88 miles an hour, Huh? That's it. What can you remember, kind of like coming watching this for the first time, and now kind of kind of going back into this with the the kind of the picture of the whole trilogy in mind? Does it does it work? So to broadly like to broadly kick it off, does it work for you guys as a capper to this trilogy? I think for me, what works really nicely with this one is that it's very doc focused, right? Like the central human yeah. element mm-hmm. to this is let's see, let's see what doc has in him other than just uh, kind of science man and conduit. Like, w- what else yeah. can he can he be? Can he be a human man who falls in love at first sight? And it turns out if uh, if he's against Mary Steenburgen, then the answer is yes. And I think like. <laughs> He's he's given a lot of room to breathe as a character in this, and I, I think that really ties the yeah. trilogy together nicely. Um, and one thing I thought even before I kind of like went back and watched it this week is it's the first time it's him versus the Tannins. Like he's never interacted yeah. with the villain, um, the re- repeated villain of the um, <laughs> of the Back to the Future series, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, it's actually. It's actually Doc Brown versus um, versus Biff or or Buford or whatever they're calling him this time around. And <laughs> like, <Mad> Dog <laughs> there was that moment where um, where he first kind of squares off um, against uh, Buford, and he's not the he's not a McFly. Like it's so obvious that he is so much bolder, so much more um, just sure of yeah. who he is, and. And that's a character that, like, I mean, it's always been there, but we've never seen him in contrast. We've never really seen him inhabit mm-hmm. a human world. Yeah. So that we can true. actually see that there's not just McFlys and Tannins in this universe. There's actually a Doc Brown. There's actually this character who yeah. is so, I, I don't know, he just, like, he plays things straight, right? And he just, like, 
he's just a very brave man who follows his convictions. I think that's what yeah. I took away from yeah. that when I saw that. Um, watching I, this back, I, is... I also had a, that note like when you saying like when you first see him as well, kind of square up to Tannen. I was like, I made a note of just being like, oh Christ, he's quite striking in that like long trench coat. And his, uh, <laughs> yeah, and his, he looks good. And his big old rifle. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sweet how he's in the first two. He's very much a man out of time, literally insofar as he's time traveling, but also like. He's not. He doesn't really belong in in 1985. He doesn't really belong in 55. He is. He, he always stands mm-hmm. out as being a bit of a weirdo in his in his present day. And it's just kind of sweet that thrust back a hundred years, you know, he's Finds he's finally place. found a place that he is. He can be himself, and he can be confident, like you say, and he can be this gunslinging womanizer. <laughs> it's really nice. I think womanizer is a stretch, but yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Like... Maybe, yeah. It, uh, this this gunslinging romance, yeah, yeah there you go. for sure, for sure. <laughs> it was funny reading about. Um, it wasn't funny is the wrong word, but it was interesting reading about um, how much more relaxed the shoot was, and how much everyone was, um, was just almost relieved and overjoyed to be able to play in this big western playground because you really do get a sense of this is a really laid back movie especially following the second movie that's so busy yeah and it's so tightly wound and it's like it, it, it's kind of like a, watching a panic attack unfold in film form this is just like this is just having a nice long bath with a beer at the end of the day it's just a nice little like you say Robin like plenty of breathing space but not just for doc for the whole for the whole story and for all the characters and, and I, yeah. even visually it opens up very nicely. Yeah. So I think um, it's it's a nice little, it's a really nice way to round the trilogy off just after the, the sort of madcap type plotting of the first two. Yeah. It's really nice to have that sort of really, really relaxed um, victory lap almost. And I really love, I, I think this might be the funniest of the three or it certainly is the one that has the biggest <laughs> proportion of belly laughs. Yeah. And it's so willing to, like, it's gotten to the stage. It's funny that it was filmed simultaneously with two, because it does feel like it was made a bit later yeah, it does. when they had a bit of distance. And they have the, the perspective to poke fun at their own conventions, because there's, there's, there's so much flipping of dialogue and um, sort of taking the mickey out of how close these things are always cut. Yeah. A little bit of lampshading going on. And I really like that. It's just like a, it's a laid back, fun movie. <laughs> and that's even there from the very opening, like you say, like just going from mm-hmm. that really manic energy of part two, where you are hopping about three different time periods. And then this film li- literally opens on like the opening credits is them having a kip because when, when they're just catching their <laughs> breath nice after everything yeah. has happened. <laughs> that's, that's a lovely shot, that, isn't it? And then you wake yeah. up and it's, yeah. all, it's all howdy doody time and it's like, oh, we're, we're back. We're back in, <laughs> yeah. we're back in 55 <laughs> Doc's world. For, like, it's a good, uh, what is it, like 20 minutes or so you spend with 1955 Doc. He, he's such a... Yeah. It's a while. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's such a relaxed fella. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, there's something, I think the pacing of this film is really, really irresistible. There's something about, it doesn't barrel ahead, but it just sort of chugs along at a nice leisurely pace. And there's so many jokes that are in the edit, like this film will sometimes cut before you might think it will, to, and like, there's a joke in how early it cuts in a scene. Even when it goes, um, like, we, we, we may need to blast, and it suddenly cuts to the explosion yeah. of the cave. And it's just like a nice little, there's a nice little sort of jovial sense of humour in 
the way a film yeah. just cuts from one one shot to the next. It's just a really nice, really nice pace. It's so, really it's like so it. nice that setup all the way through to the um, mm-hmm. like the the drive-in theater, right? Like that's where we leave nineteen fifty-five dock behind and. All of that is exposition, but it's so much fun because it's just Doc and Marty. Um, yeah, yeah. Just having, just enjoying each other's company as well. Like this is this yeah, is a Doc yeah, who yeah. was uh, upset he wouldn't be able to see Marty for thirty years and talk about those past events, and here's this his own kind of victory lap with this uh, with this now yeah. old friend. Definitely. That's one of my main criticisms of part two. I feel like the kind of uh, camaraderie and the relationship between Marty and Doc gets a little lost. And I do think like, like you say as well, Josh, it feels weird that this is filmed so closely because that almost feels like a reaction to that kind of the way it is. And particularly the way it may have been received as well, that you do get this like quite drawn out set up just between the two of them kind of piecing it together and like sorting it sorting out the the means to get marty home again but then refocusing it so it becomes a a rescue mission for doc rather than marty this time out yeah yeah but even still it's just it's a rescue mission in such a chilled out way and i do think uh it clicked for me the other day that this movie is essentially it's a hangout movie it's a very very vibe heavy movie and then it's just sort of full of characters, like you say, just hanging out with each other. And it invites you to just do the same, to, to, to be in this film's company. You don't really need to hold on for dear life like the second or even the first one. You just sort of, you know, you just vibe with it. It's great. I, lo- I love me a hangout movie. And uh, this, you know, it was nice. It was nice. It's, like, it's like seeing an old friend watching this film again <laughs> that you haven't seen for a while and thinking, oh, yeah, I, I know why we used to get along. This is good. And I think very much the heart of heart of it comes from the relationship between um, uh, Clara and Doc. And you kind of spoke to mm. it a little bit earlier, Robin, about that kind of sense of like believing Doc as a character who can fall in love at first sight. And a lot of that is going to come come on the uh, the chemistry that between between two actors that in any in in any kind of film that asks you to kind of buy into that moment. And uh, what what are your guys' kind of feelings on particularly um, Lloyd and Steve Bergen's uh, on-screen chemistry and how that allows this pairing to, like, how does it sell it? <laughs> oh, 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 it, it is just dynamite chemistry. It's, they're so sweet, man. <laughs> I, I did watch this film after a couple of beers last night, maybe a few more than a couple, so I was a little bit... Uh, you know, a few sheets to the wind, as it were, and my emotions are heightened somewhat when I'm in that state. But I found that the scene when they talk about Jules Verne and then the shooting mm. star goes past, I found that really sweet and I had a little, little tear. And then the scene, I, I think they did such a good job of selling that bond, that really intense bond, that when he has to tell her that he's from the future and he's got to go back, I found that really heartbreaking. I've always found it quite a sad scene, but this time I just found it really, really heartbreaking <laughs> because no... Don't. Uh, you're, he's telling the truth, but obviously you're not going to believe him, are you? So no, you're just getting upset and it's not nice. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's really good. They have such such strong chemistry, I think. You really do feel like when they're when they're dancing together at the, the hoedown, 
They just they they they, they oh, look good. Cool. They've got a good <laughs> physical chemistry together. I'm just happy for them. <laughs> what do you think, Rob? Yeah, one thing I I really noticed on going back to it um, this time around is how early that first kiss is with them. I was like, when they mm-hmm. when they first meet, you know, he already has this kind of. Uh, He's one step ahead of her because he's seen this beloved Clara um, on the tombstone. And yet then it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's almost like she's a MacGuffin, right? Like how quickly can can he um, fall in love with her and vice versa? And is it going to happen within the four days or so that they've got left? And then they're on their date. They're talking about Jules Verne. The shooting star goes over kind of after they kiss. And it's mm. so it's so gentle with it. Like it's not, there's no forcing of them getting to that point. There's no like misunderstanding that has to happen or like funny joke. It just like, it just comes at the end of this really lovely conversation um, as opposed to being something that has to be, you know, uh, earned in a cinematic sense. Yeah. And I think it comes as a really nice surprise um, in general for both the character of Doc and seeing this kind of different side to him that you wouldn't really expect, but also just for Christopher Lloyd as an actor. So like for the most part, and particularly the build up before getting back to the future, he is a, a character actor. He's in taxi where he's kind of like a, a bit schlubby or he's playing, he, he plays a lot of kind of like creature roles in a lot of early eighties sci-fi movies like Buckaroo Banzai and Star Trek three. Search for Spock, where kind of a Lon Chaney quality to him. Yeah, it's where because because he does have that kind of like great rubbery face that you can really apply mm-hmm. to like really big broad characters like that. But like, I and I, I it does always strike me just how like quite fi- quite like fitting and like how quickly you do buy him as a romantic hero. Um, and a lot of that come again comes from the off in that introduction against Tannen, where you do see doc really in his element in a way that you haven't seen him before and then to have that the relationship with clara just come across as so kind of as you guys have said so sweet and and very palatable in in a way that you just you yeah you you fall for them quite pretty much in exactly the same pace that they fall for each other which is why this will always be slightly better than the second one in my eyes just because like and it's something we talked about with dan there's a bit of a heart missing in part two because yeah. it is so frantic sometimes and and this this film's all about kind of planting its feet again and finding that heart in the characters and finding different shades to them as well yeah for sure it's just it's lovely yeah there's like the the very heavy-handed kind of message of this film is the future is not written. And that's something that Doc learns through this relationship, right? Is like he has never seen himself with a romantic future. And then once that's on the cards and once he kind of chooses it over a, a, I don't know, a more literal future in 1985, um, he comes to this conclusion wholeheartedly. And so he's able to actually... Um, distill it uh, for for Jennifer and uh, I think again like just going back to this is Doc's movie or that the heart of this is is Doc's yeah. um, and so he's able to grow from 
caring about the science of it all, what is the consequence on the universal level, blah, 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 blah. But here he's able to arrive at, actually, no, future is this this very personal thing. And Marty's kind of teased mm-hmm. with that by, by Seamus particularly, but it's uh, mm. it really... Doc needs the relationship in this film to kind of arrive at that um, self-actualization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's well, speaking of Marty and Seamus's role in relation to Marty, this kind of does in the episode with Dan about part two. One of all of our main critic, one of the most recurring critiques is how how suddenly this um, uh, dislike of being called chicken <laughs> is shoehorned yeah. into Marty McFly seemingly out of nowhere and with no real payoff and we were sort of saying that it it, it, it is obviously setting up a thing that pays off in this movie this is this two film character arc it's not very satisfying in the first one but did you guys what did you make of the way this film um you know pays off that character trait i kind of forgot about that element of uh Seamus saying he had a had another brother who um yeah, was uh, killed in a gunfight because of someone calling him out, and uh, I forgot that it does. This film does try to tie it into a kind of sense of predetermination in the makeup of your family and in your ancestors. That the kind of all uh, that seems to touch on a point that sometimes these films kind of do go go on and on how kind of generations can end up echo- echoing each other. And how certain choices can lead down certain paths, and for the better and for the worse. Um, and the, the <laughs> I <laughs> to kind of jump ahead a little bit in the kind of timeline of the 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 film itself. That I don't mind like that kind of him his real his relationship with Seamus kind of allowing him to kind of unpack that for himself and kind of realize the the folly in it and like to essentially grow up is uh, is the, his essential lesson yeah, here. Yeah, um, It just, even as a kid, it always used to throw me just how quickly the um, car crash is supposed to happen in his future when he gets back. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. always really threw me. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was under the impression that this was gonna, this was an event that was supposed to happen to him in like five to ten years' time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they right go, then. They go, you see it. If you don't see it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's it him is not, a bit just not learning the lesson enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to see it. Especially like... I, 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 yeah, in the in the whole, um, you know, something's got to be done about your kids, but then actually Marty's life is ruined, and Marty's life is ruined the, the <laughs> yeah, next yeah. day by a crash, <laughs> and, and that's yeah. not what Doc's come back to tell him about. <laughs> he is. That's really it, funny. It's yeah. not even. It's not yeah. even the next day, is it? It's it's literally like the same. It's I think later it, that it's, afternoon. It's yeah. later <laughs> that day, Unless. I don't know, maybe there's a sleep while he's in Alternative 85, but like, yeah, it, it's still, it's within 24 hours of Doc coming back. He's going to, yeah. like, put himself or possibly the Rolls Royce owner in the hospital, it's not clear. Um, but either way, yeah. that is going to put him on this path of being a very aged yeah. man by age, what is it, 50, um, who, yeah, yeah. Who is... Uh, subordinate to flee at work and it's just it's just this, this horrible thing it's like doc what are your priorities <laughs> like why is he I know. About his kids going to prison for 15 days or whatever it is um why is it not this oh god 
Yeah, why not save your buddy? Man, that second movie, they they, <laughs> they 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 insist they wrote themselves into a corner, which they really sort of cack-handedly write themselves out of. They make such a pig's ear of it. It's so funny. Just make a new movie. It's, it's fine. You don't want to be in 2015. Don't... We've got to save you, trace your family's crumble to this one event where your kids get arrested. It, that's no, it's silly. I don't know. It's, words it's properly silly. Me. I was just going to say, in, in generally, for Michael J. Fox in this one, I think it's a much more, uh, much more level headed performance, and you feel a bit more of that kind of yeah. original Marty again. I think largely because you get yeah. that dynamic between him and Doc coming more to the fore. Yeah. And, seeing marty kind of like decent marty. grapple with this and have that kind of like smart wit as well and, yeah and i do like the way they kind of like um build in that kind of tandem lesson for him where both because it is essentially about both of them trying to get over that kind of like preconceptions of time travel that they've got in their minds that like the kind of rigidity that they've got in their heads about the, date, yeah, the dangers yeah, of it, and yeah. then just coming to learn that like yes what we what we've done over the course of these films could could have like dire consequences uh, as we have seen and had to undo but at the same time it also proves that like any small decision can kind of lead you down a path and like Mm -hmm. you just have to kind of like trust in (laughs) trust in the in the journey that you're going on rather than uh, trying to fix everything yeah. all the time or being think, having yeah. to think pragmatic about it the whole time. <laughs> yeah. It's just little tweaks to your behaviour that can have these big ripple effects. You don't have to make these big grand sweeping gestures yeah. to change yourself. You can just, you can tweak things and you can just think about how you react to certain stimuluses. Stimuli? And, uh, and, and, and you know, alter your re- reactions there accordingly. Like, for me... I, I don't like Seamus very much. I think that's a, a it's a bad accent. And I think that the the role he plays for Marty is way too cutesy by half. And that is, the the McFlys in the Old West have never really worked for me. It just feels quite synthetic and a bit hollow. But what I do love is, I, I, Zemeckis is so good at climaxes. And every one of these movies has a really, really good, fun, well well-built and well-executed climax. And everything from the uh, the shootout at sundown onwards in this movie is so much fun. Yeah, and the, there is that moment of tension where Buford is in in the on the street calling for Marty to join him. And you, as a viewer, have a little bit of tension. I think thinking, has he learnt to not be a hothead and to not give in to his reactionary impulses, or is is he is he is he still the same old Marty that hates being called chicken? And then you have that release where he goes, he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's such a it's such a it's a really great way again of puncturing the sort of the conventions and the ways of these movies and it's a real sigh of relief as a viewer because okay this guy this guy has changed and he knows that instead of letting these things get to him he can sort of like shrug it off it's not on me the fact that he's calling me yellow that's not that says nothing about me that says more about him yeah you know and it's uh, that whole I love how Marty handles the shootout. I think it's really the whole thing. It's also really like we got bigger things to. Uh, co- oh, there's a bigger thing to be concerned about here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it's great. It's, I think that it has a really nice. Uh, it has a really nice. I do like that whole. I think I think it ultimately does have a good payoff. Yeah, and that whole drawn out shootout for me just feel like it's like the the, West, oh, the yeah. Western films really trying to hold on to the 
the sci-fi film is saying you're not getting away quite yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta have your shoot out. Go back door to this place. <laughs> we gotta have our Eastwood moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Oh man, yeah, it's so much fun. Um, and you know, um, someone we haven't spoken about yet, but uh, Tom F. Wilson as Buford Tannen. We spoke mm. about him at length as you know, three Biffs and a Griff in the previous film. He's just playing the one kind of kind of one and a half characters in this because you get a glimpse of of, of shit nineteen eighty five Biff at the end of this yeah, one. Yeah, hunched. But um, yeah, what do what do we think of Buford? He's he's great, isn't he? He's so much more menacing yeah. straight from the off than than other yeah. Biffs. You know, like the nineteen fifty five Biff is the uh, the insidious most evil of of Biffs. I think um, <laughs> he he is he is awful. Um, but then this yeah. this Buford, he's just he's just a criminal, right? Like he's just yeah. he's a very happy criminal, um, happy to announce his plans um, ahead of time and get himself arrested. <laughs> Just a brilliant little detail. It's like you announced <laughs> yeah. to a to a dance of a hundred people what you were going to do, and then turned up the next day. Fantastic, but um, yeah, I think as as Buford, he doesn't he doesn't have quite as much to to do as as when he's the many Biffs. Um, in in yeah. two, this is not his movie, right? This is uh, this is as we've said, like it's Doc and Marty's uh, hangout movie. Um, but he. He does what he needs to do, and he's he's still very funny. Yeah. Um, all of the I so he has some great lines. All of the missed, uh, metaphors. What's Borfit mean? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shoot you like a duck. All of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what's Borfit mean? Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> like, I can't do that. Oh, doing I do my Sunday? killing after breakfast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When the tra- what about Monday? Wow, <laughs> we'll kill him Monday. <laughs> he's, he's, but even like that little voice even, crack he has, even as like well. uh, a, a dude. Let's go, boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even I do my killing after breakfast. Sort of reaches back to the line, uh, "Hey, McFly, not really. Sleep in Saturday." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> such a the way they sort of twist and repurpose these little character traits is great. <laughs> and I think like physically as well. He's the only one who really embraces the ugliness of the old West. Because <laughs> he, he he has those rotten teeth and he's constantly muddy. Yeah. And uh, he's just he looks he looks like he smells and he's he's I lo- what I love Tannen's so much always about him, destined to be covered in shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But he's really not he's not a vain actor. He's really happy to get down and dirty and he, he's good to go to physically and also behaviorally ugly places yeah. as as the various tannins. And I really respect that about him. He just con- he completely makes it work, and it's never off-putting. He just—he's—he's he's got such a deft hand with that, mm-hmm. you know, with that tonal line that he walks. I—I—I I, I, I think he's stuff. also the kind of most su- successful component of this film as a kind of like classic western as well, and having this kind of yeah grubby gunslinger <laughs> yeah. walking through town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's real piece of shit. As like as a western, there's there's that, and there's the like. Um, there's a like satirical use of all of these brands, right? There's like the Colt pistols yeah. and the and the Stetsons <laughs> yeah. and the the one that like just really made me laugh because I'd never really noticed it before is um is someone's telling Doc about like um you know you can never know your future and Doc's like oh I can tell you about the future but he says my peddling barbed wire across this country has taught me 
And it's just like this, this awful <laughs> I really caught that like, last time. <laughs> yeah, just like the the Wild West is like this uh, this storied thing of men were real men, but actually no, everyone was a merchant selling utter yeah across the United States from one town to the next. Like no one was Clint Eastwood in a fistful of dollars. Everyone was yeah. this barbed wire salesman. <laughs> A traveling salesman <laughs> who thinks they know life because they've been to a hundred towns that are exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Definitely. You got like these kind of like warring ideas of what a Western is that's kind of like does characterize a lot of how this Western's built up. Like even from the off where mm. uh, the 1955 doc dresses Marty up in a like pastel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> colored uh, cowboy outfit because that's what they were wearing in the fifties movies with, in like Rio Bravo or like what John Wayne would wear. <laughs> and then it just when you're actually there, it's like, oh, of course this doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, you're liable to get shot <laughs> or hanged. <laughs> he, he very quickly redresses himself as the man with no name. Yeah, he? yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, it has so much fun. Oh, go on, Andy. No, I was just going to say that, that that kind of mirrors like how that kind of like perception of the Western has changed from like fifty five to eighty five, yeah. or like, and then kind of yeah, placing yeah. it back. Uh, for for like the general West for me it does kind of feel a bit like quite like Disneyland, and a lot and a lot of its approach yeah. to like the way it uh, mounts it. But I think that's part of the fun of it as well as a, a kind of playing yeah. in that sandbox and like. There's a lot of life in it still. Like I think particularly I was really drawn to the detail um that like Rick Carter and his production design team bring to particularly uh Doc's uh, mm. warehouse. I just I love looking around in that warehouse because it looks mad. There's so many yeah, different parts yeah. going on. <laughs> I wanna hang out yeah. in it. <laughs> uh, one thing I know. One thing that really stuck out for me, I got the the Blu-ray box set for Christmas and I've been watching for the podcast I've been watching them all on the Blu-ray and I, I'd only ever seen them on that muddy DVD from 2002 beforehand so seeing them on Blu-ray in high def was was a real eye-opening and this is the one that I think is the biggest beneficiary of that that transfer because it looks gorgeous it I'd forgotten or I'd never previously realized just how good this movie looks um Dean Cundy's doing some delicious delicious work like a lot of dust and shadows and uh, that sort of gentle yeah. light sepia. Looks tinge. very romantic. It, it, it looks it goes right stunning. To the heart of it, yeah, it? yeah. A lot of but God very damn. Cool. Every time it cut to a new vista, yeah, I'd go, oh, <laughs> oh gorgeous, <laughs> pretty film. And it is. I think one of the reasons maybe that stands out so much is it's the first time they don't use the Hill Valley set in a film yeah. and they do go to an actual location as opposed to because the second movie we figured out right the second movie is pretty much all back lot it's all that one set yeah, isn't it? pretty much just redressed just up in different day. ways yeah <laughs> and the high school again but... and that movie's yeah and that movie's a bit more difficult to look at because everything looks a bit like polystyrene whereas this one is just the natural american <laughs> landscape and i think dean cundy works with that really nicely mm. Mm. And I think that's also buoyed by like Alan Silvestri as well being allowed the kind of oh yeah set up top being allowed the space to like really give characters new themes and also play in genre, um, be it from like the kind of 
adventure theme that kind of takes over at the end uh or like even just like at the dance as well there's that like <laughs> that zz top for playing one of my um one of my drunken notes that made me giggle when i read it back today was i like how the band spins their drum around <laughs> i love that yeah <laughs> i i really like when the dudes yeah i i love that cantina cool. band like just we know one song we know one song we're gonna play that song three times <laughs> i also really enjoyed learning that the day that they were shooting that so zz top were there for to play that play those parts that with their instruments and the camera broke while they were shooting doing that setup so they start to re- repair yeah. the camera and michael j fox just asked zz top if they could just play something whilst uh they were waiting for the camera to be fixed and they just kept churning out songs and it took about it got to about two hours into it where they had just been performing little ditties on these uh, old west instruments and they were just like yeah. oh we good to go yet and the Zemeckis <laughs> was like oh yeah we fixed the camera about an hour and a half ago we were just having a good time <laughs> <laughs> that is that 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 is the vibe of this movie just distilled into one anecdote yeah. isn't it yeah. <laughs> just spending like just having a really good time on Universal's budget right just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah spending that for Everyone's playing dress up. It's it's yeah. kind of this like film of of wish fulfillment. Like I had this idea just watching Doc like early on. He's so happy. Um, you know, he says, "Don't come and get me because I love the Wild West." And I, like for Zemeckis, this must have been the the one that he wanted to make. I mean, the the first one's thematically more interesting, but to make a western is something that yeah. must have been on mm-hmm. his radar since he like he and Gail met at USC. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I you can certainly feel the the again, and I think a lot of the general warmth that comes through. Yes, we've talked about how it's kind of baked into the cinematography and the performances and the and the characterization of Dot. But I think, like as we said in part two, part of the issue with that is you can really tell that he doesn't want to be shooting the twenty fifteen bits and he's rushing yeah, to get through yeah. them. Here, he's just happy to spend his time in it, and like particularly once he's got his little hill valley set up he's like yep we're gonna just yeah. hang out here for some time we're gonna we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna enjoy it <laughs> it's it's like a very spirited languor that it's in yeah it's slow ish by comparison to the first two mm. but it's never dull or uninteresting and that I, I people so often i guess it's a bit less ambitious in part two and part two gets by a lot on on its narrative ambition yeah but people people sort of tend to look down on this one because it is so simple and you know to go back to what can be said calling it bland and agreeable i, I, I think that's way harsh it's hard <laughs> to calibrate a tone this pleasant i think mm. it's a real just a, a real shot of goodness it's just a you know yeah it can't be easy to make a film that when you watch a film where everyone said we had such a good time on set, that can so often come across as indulgent and directionless. But it's so rare to translate that feeling of of easygoing fun mm. into the thing itself. I think I think it's a really well done thing. I lo- I really love this movie so so <laughs> much. It really really works. And I think that's kind of built into the way it still kind of delivers to the pattern that we've come to expect from the first two and particularly i'm thinking in the final act where it does become the sequence of set pieces that 
Um, so in the first one, yeah. you've got going from the dance to um, the clock tower. And then part two, you've got that great fun of like kind of seeing them kind of try and hide out in the background of that prolonged um, final sequence from yeah. the first one. And then this one like comes very close to um, topping the final act of the first one for me. Because like, as you said yeah, earlier, from definitely. The, right from the uh, Fist War Dollars kind of riffing in the shootout mm-hmm. to the fantastic tra- train chase sequence. Like, I think we should probably oh. focus on the train chase for uh, a moment. Yeah, like, <laughs> let's talk trains. Yeah, just from the way it's kind of like constructed in the way that you've got you, this very easy visual cue that kind of like uh, on paper is so very simple, but works so very effectively for uh, mounting tension up as you just get these red, yeah. green, yellow, red. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. Smoke yeah, coming through. Yeah. It, it works so perfectly for like yeah. really like just throwing you in there and like really making you aware of what is what is at stake anyway from having what these signify yeah. to uh, <laughs> for Doc and Marty getting home, but then also kind of throwing in the extra tension of Clara hopping on and trying to. Yeah, uh, get Dot's attention as well. You, again, a lot of these levels that are stacking on top of each other to work yeah. to a really exciting and uh, incredibly well executed set piece on a bit more of a kind of practical level as well than say something like the yeah um, yeah split screen green screen work that part two is particularly um, reveling in. Uh, what what mm-hmm. what do you make of that final sequence, Robin? Uh, yeah, yeah. I did have one note from it. Well, I've got a lot of notes from it, but there's one that I really want to mention, which is I just wrote down, Clara can really ride a horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when she once she mounts that horse, she catches up with that train in no time. But it's just yeah. like, I don't know, there's something like really visually arresting about when <laughs> she's in this. Yeah. She's in this and purple, that purple dress. dress she was is just fantastic. <laughs> that purple dress is awesome. Yes. From yeah. The, from the second that was one ar- of my notes as well. From the second it arrives on the train platform, and it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Doc is missing out on this, Hoddy. Yeah. What? then she's on the train the guys are talk- clearly talking about him and Josh this is one like the cuts you were alluding to before I think where it's just yeah. like you expect it to keep going until she finds out so she can get off this train before it leaves but no yeah. like it cuts away and it's like ah, what's happening is she coming back and, yeah. then, <laughs> yeah. and then it goes back and, and she has to get off a moving train and um and then she runs into town, picks up a horse, and then has to go back to the train, which they've they've yeah. seen <laughs> since. Uh, what, what was Doc's word? Uh, borrowed. Um, I think they're borrowing the train. Yeah, um, yeah. they're borrowing yeah. the train. Just and a hold up. it into the ravine. It's more of a yeah. science experiment. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's one of those things, and it 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 seems so obvious to talk about it like this, but he's so good at clean clear action yeah with with visual stakes and it helps that he shows you a a recce of the climax with the models earlier on so you know know what you know what needs to happen but then baked into that you have everything is visual you can watch the thing silently and know exactly what's going on what's at stake and like you say the escalating colors and then you have the added purple clara Who's there complicating things more? And you have little little things built into the set pieces. The the car, um, she snags her dress, and the doc has to ride the hoverboard to to, to grab her. And just, he's so so good 
are doing these things visually and so clearly and it just means as a viewer you know exactly what needs to be happening and he can play you like a little fiddle by tweaking your expectations mm-hmm. and just the clarity with which he does that. He doesn't feel the need to rapidly cut or to throw in some shaky cam. It's just mad, it's mad that, 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 that the art of that kind of elegance of set-piece construction it's, is, I don't know, yeah, it's not so well done. that present anymore yeah it's just oh, it's uh man. from from there in the like um in the clock tower sequence in the first one and then back to the the train in this one they are kind of built in a very similar way right like once that car gets going yeah. there is there is a time i really felt it in watching this back that like once that car is on the track there's no going back there's just stakes at this point yeah yeah and then yeah and then yeah you've, you've exactly. got the in point of no return but there's there's one piece of information that like Doc has been keeping um, behind of like yeah when the red one goes the engine explodes and like, yeah. and like oh you, you forgot to mention that last time around and just yeah like, that, I was like Marty, why, why like, didn't you say that before fantastic. yeah it's like okay Doc yeah obviously you left out that detail um as as you so often do yeah it's uh it's really just well executed it. I think it just you can't you can't take your eyes off the screen for that one. You know, that's one of those times that I'm yeah, getting really yeah. used to watching films in a, um, in an environment where I can pause them um, and be. Mm-hmm. But then I start to have like these rules about when a pause can come, right? Um, and yes, that, me too. That's that yeah. kind of sequence where no, like I can't I can't pause it there. I I needed the loop. But yeah. I can't pause it during that <laughs> Not here. Because it's Not like, here. I don't want to. I don't want to lose that that build up. Um, you don't want to yeah, lose that the tension. momentum is so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, it, yeah. it's it's really it's really well felt. And yeah, the the way my brain likes to alert yeah. me to this kind of stuff is no toilet breaks until this is over. No, yeah. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's such a slow propulsion that's gathering more and more pace without you fully realizing it and then by the time the climax comes you realize just how well it has been building to that level and it's exciting it's so exciting and and how about when that kind of then leads into this epilogue where marty's return to 85 i've kind of i've kind of already spoken a bit how i think that whole Mm. beat with flea is very strange and that I'm not sure it's entirely <laughs> necessary, but uh, <laughs> how do you feel the film itself does uh, uh, kind of taking these kind of loose ends and tying it all up so that you do have this kind of neat package mm. to finish finish off the trilogy of movies? It it was remarkably like a lot quicker than I was expecting it to be. I remember it, yeah. I remember it being a lot longer. It's, I think it's all done about five minutes, even with the uh, mm. um, even with the the chase. Um, and yeah, flee, flee in this movie. He doesn't need to be there. Um, <laughs> I think it doesn't need. It doesn't need to be flee. <laughs> What's wrong, McFly? Yeah. Oh my god! Like, he goes to this same school. Like, how do they know each other? Like, he's clearly much. I think, yeah, I think they're in. The, I think they're in. The <laughs> Who the fuck is Needles? That doesn't doesn't track at all. Um, no, but yeah, Who like I think I think the. Um, yeah, going back to Jennifer on the porch. Um, if we could have a conversation, go back <laughs> to Jennifer to, on the yeah. porch. That is so stupid, and it seems like this <laughs> film knows how stupid it is because Marty himself yeah. calls it out. He's like, "Oh my god, Doc, 
I can't believe we just left her there on the porch. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you freaking idiot. So we like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> Time's relative. Yeah. You're not thinking three dimension, fourth dimension. <laughs> fourth dimension. Yeah, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, I guess it is, it, like you said, it is a very neat climax, and it's far neater than these films deserve, but they've logically, they've never really made much sense, but I think as long as it makes sense emotionally, it gets away with a lot, and, and this, it toes the line, it, it, it comes very close to being, uh, sort of being a little bit too much. But then you have a flying time traveling train. Then you have a flying time train. How can you train. resist a flying time traveling train? Yeah, you, you and can't. two creepy looking yeah. children. <laughs> oh, oh my God. two weird so, little garbage pail so, kids. So, so creepy. <laughs> Particularly Vern. One of whom is pointing to his dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you that whole thing about how one of them, oh, yeah. I think it is Vern, it is, is pointing to is, his dick? Yeah. Yeah, what, he was given the, the camera operator yeah, directions. He like signals the like, camera. He beckons to forward, then points at his dick. <laughs> yeah, he, he does do <laughs> yeah, that. It's really, really weird. But I think it was, for some reason he was giving on-camera directions to the <laughs> to the camera operator. But they are weird-looking kids. That's what happens when you're brought up in a time-traveling household train. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be uh, evil geniuses. Makes you look like that. <laughs> one one detail I noticed as well is. Uh, Doc went back to collect Einstein and and mm. then came to see Marty. Marty wasn't his first ball <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I I believe it took him eight years or however long the like the oldest child is, uh, plus nine yeah. months and then then some yeah. hopefully. Um but then to get it took him, <laughs> Yeah, it, it took it, it took him like ten years to build this train, but his first thought wasn't let's go yeah. see Marty and just say everything's alright, by the way. It was, I'm going to go pick up that dog, which I told Marty to look after. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if and there's part of him just his, going, his... he probably hasn't gone and gone in, has he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't trust you to look his... after the dog. <laughs> if his first thought was getting Einstein, his second thought was, oh, I'm actually, before I go and see Marty, I'm going to go to the future and make this thing fly, because I can't just have a time-travelling train. It's got to be make flying fly. as well. <laughs> it needs, it's very important. Before I see Martin, I, I do think maybe he built that himself. He had the hoverboard, um, so maybe he, maybe uh, he was able to uh, reverse engineer. Could reverse engineer. I've, I've got a lot of faith in Already him. Um, by by yeah. that point, he's he's very capable as an inventor. He built a fridge out of like spare parts. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a oh, lot of moving components fun. for that for to get two ice cubes, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I do love those Pee Wee Herman esque Rube Goldberg. Yeah, I love machines. the Rube Goldberg machine. Always a good time. Yeah, the breakfast in this one, um, it, it looks great. Um, <laughs> the breakfast itself, and also the machine. It's, yeah. just, uh, it's such a nice yeah. little like nod back to um, to that opening opening shot, right in the whole franchise. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. that beautiful uh, exposition heavy shot, uh, just panning across that room. Um, for Einstein's neglected food, actually. Um, <laughs> ah, for his dog food. There go. Or, it all comes back to Einstein, yeah. Poor little Liney. <laughs> it's just, guys, it's just a good, nice movie. Yeah. Why can't more movies be good and nice? <laughs> good, it's just good and nice! <laughs> so many of my notes last night were... <laughs> were this is really fun but with increasing aggression so it went from really fun really fun good time fucking fun (laughs) (laughs) 
That's the point where the train starts Weird flying. <laughs> yeah. Ah! I feel like Nintendo kid. Oh my god! It's a, it's a problem. I like... Movie. Yeah. And I like it when ZZ Top spins his drum around. <laughs> that that one's even more like just capital letters in your notebook. I can I get I can picture it. <laughs> <laughs> Another note that I have that I don't recall thinking is Scary Bear. Oh scary yeah. Bear. <laughs> scary Bear. Yeah. Dark and dance. It's scary Bear, I guess. Yeah. It's definitely a scary bear. I don't know. It's just... I, I, I guess... <coughs> I do feel like maybe there's not as much to talk about with this one as part two. Because it's so much simpler. And there's so many... There are so fewer moving parts. But I, I definitely like this one more. Mm. It just works. It, it, operationally, it's better. Yeah. It functions better. And, and as the kind of like trilogy capper, and I, I, I think we... Of course, we've kind of talked about the kind of uh, legacy that Back to the Future has had, but like to kind of like really kind of get to the heart of this trilogy. What is it for you guys that makes these three films and this franchise something that has proven to be so endearing, despite the fact it only kind of lives for it was like it's this five Mm. the trilogy three films made over five years and then that's it, that's done that. Like yeah. so many other properties, don't kind of have like yes, you have your Star Warses and what have you, but they they are still going in various different forms with new installments have you all the time. This is a very contained package of a legacy, really. I know you have a cartoon series, yeah. you have a roller coaster ride, oh, yeah. but this is still you have that game, don't you? That yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm as a kind of yeah, stage musical now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's still a very contained franchise, really, in the grand yeah. scheme of all these all these multiple multiple IPs. Uh, so, what is it for you guys that really is that enduring and enduring appeal for the Back to the Future trilogy? It's it's that relationship, right, right between Doc and Marty, uh, and I think they're just such nice characters to be around. I think um, mm. you talked obviously about Eric Stoltz um, with Harley and. If it if it were any other cast, maybe these films wouldn't have that um, kind of endearing quality that they that they have. I I really think mm-hmm. it it is as simple as that. And then on top of that, you know, they're so iconic. Um, I think we all lived through twenty fifteen, unless uh, the two of you DeLoreaned over that year. Um, but <laughs> it blipped. Yeah, yeah, you, you blipped. You blipped during that time. Yeah. Uh, well, I took the train. <laughs> you, t- you took the train. Josh, Josh got snapped out of existence, um, which is a film I definitely want to talk about in context with this film. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. the <laughs> they, they too feel of a piece. And anyway, that 2015, everyone talked about we're in the future now. Like we've done it. We've hit mm-hmm. the year, which was once upon a time, the future. And um, yeah. and like a similar thing will happen when no we already hit um, I think the Blade Runner year a few years ago right it's supposed to be yeah, 2019, 2019 I think 2019 but it it didn't have quite the fanfare and the maybe the central no. relationship helps but there's so much about these films which is iconic going to 2015 being in the future seeing all the ridiculous inventions the car which is an awful car like 
No one has ever driven that car and had a good time. It's a famously bad car. There's an American Dad episode yeah. dedicated to how silly of a car it is. Uh, its top speed <laughs> was barely in the 80 miles per hour. The idea that anyone could get it up to 88 is ridiculous. Um, it's a car which really is, I like, it only exists because of big business in the 80s being given like all the government handouts they can just so that you can have something yeah. that looks vaguely futuristic um it wouldn't exist <laughs> if it wasn't like backed by such an 80s kind of culture around um yeah around new new technologies being developed um but yeah there's something so iconic in all of the choices that they that they make through these films um, the flying car, the flying train, um, calling back to Fistful of Dollars. Like, just all of these things kind of tie it together so that it is memorable. Um, who was that who said it was a, a very forgettable um, film? I think that's... Camby, Vincent Camby. Well, I mean, look at how many people remember it now. It's it's definitely not instantly yeah, no. forgettable if it has this legacy. And yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to the relationship and the just so many iconic choices so many things which um wouldn't have existed without it josh yeah. what about you i think there's there's something just so spirited about these films there's there's a sense of of a child at play in a good way there's like such um it's like i in, I, I use this to describe Endgame to a point too. It, it's I don't think that's in the same. I don't like that film as much as these films personally, but I, it kind of feels like a child pouring their box of toys on their bedroom floor and just going meow meow and just bashing them all together. It has that. It's so excited to sh- to, to 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 take its pieces and make something new and exciting. And yeah. even though this film does, it sort of reuses a lot of beats and a lot of um, bits of dialogue and a lot of. You know, it it does reuse and recycle a lot, but it it, it has such a, a macro ambition that I love, and that's that's why I will cling on to part two for all its faults. Is it, it is so it's it doesn't it makes it so much harder for itself, so much more difficult than it needs to be, and I kind of really respect that mad ambition. And then I love how the third film in an eighties teen sci-fi franchise is a daft western. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a it's such a brilliantly they don't. They, I feel like as much as they sometimes make weird choices and sometimes do reuse bits and bobs, they never seem to rest on their laurels. Uh, the two bobs, and they I don't know. They surround themselves with very good people, and it makes for these very very exciting. Uh, this is, I think it is just the word spirited. The, the, these don't feel like films that were made by committee or made because they had to be. Yeah, you, Everyone seems very yeah. excited to be making mm-hmm. them and that is really infectious to watch as a viewer. And also, I just love time travel. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's real. Time travel and shrinking films is, is very much <laughs> my bag, baby. Yeah. So Amblin in the late 80s was really my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, where's it for you, Andy? Yeah, I mean, like, I agree with all the points that you guys have kind of made that it's just one of these things that kind of has the bit and the design or in the characters that kind of really lend themselves to bleeding into iconography, be it, I'm I'm sure there's a, there's a alternate reality out there where Back to the Future came out and maybe didn't make that much money when it did, but has still gone on to be an incredible like cult hit. There's just too many kind of ingredients within it that kind of, have a sense of personality that's 
unlike quite unlike anything and, and i do I, I do think that kind of runs through the whole three because even even though on the surface part three is maybe a bit more of a kind of like and it's something that dan brought up a kind of like a traditional model of what you expect a time travel movie to do to just go back to a different period and play in it um it's still doing quite like surprising and interesting decisions based on character within that prism of genre and still using it to reinforce these kind of like quite timeless themes of like and ultimately quite like spiritual themes as well of kind of bringing in a sense of uh family and either be it history repeating or having grappling with this kind of sense of predeterminism and trying to um forge a path and knowing too much about like discovering that so much part of who you are is based on uh pre people that you would never meet or uh kind of shades of your people key in your life from like your parents or mentor figures that like um you would never have that you that would surprise you and uh, particularly in the way that they bleed into into your own character and how these kind of people that you think you know can be like so easily changed or forged by the like like we were saying the the slightest decisions that they make and how they even the slightest thing can really change who who you are or how you are perceived and i think that's something that is incredibly timeless and then plant that on top of just something that is just so silly fun and goofy and full with <laughs> yeah. rich special effects it's uh it's mad <laughs> so you get like yeah you kind of get the bells and whistles packaging without as well as having something that does on a thematic level still carry a great deal of a great deal of weight and uh resonance even to like even you know we're what 40 years on now <laughs> nearly 40 years on from oh <laughs> oh wow oh it sounds weird when you say it like that yeah and, and i think it's a reason why we we aren't very very like likely to ever see it either rebooted or a mm-hmm. part four or like i know like zemeckis and gale have always been quite on the very ardent about that fact that that, that it's just not ever gonna happen but um and also because like he says like there's no there's no drama in number four like there's something about freeze that like just feels good yeah yeah free out structures and what have you so there's something about four that just just doesn't feel very dramatic which i do very much agree with (laughs) yeah for sure i think quadrilogy that's not a word (laughs) (laughs) so many have tried um I remember I had the Die Hard quadrilogy as a boxer and uh, somewhat wish it had stayed that way. Um, <laughs> me, like, I think Die Hard was the first like old film, like film that hadn't recently come out that I saw at the cinema. Because um, the Odeon mm. near me, it must, have been, um, it must have been 2010, was doing this kind of like films from however long, just films that had already come out, right? So they had that and yeah. Had yeah. one of the Indiana Jones um, and they had also a, a 25th anniversary screening of uh, of Back to the Future. So I think um, that would have been around the time I was coming back to these movies, like away from, from Charlton. I think uh, that's really what sparked the kind of teenage obsession with it, um, is that 25th anniversary yeah. release. Yeah. Uh, 
the one that Andy wasn't able to attend. <laughs> that, that, that one, yeah. Very sad story. Very sad story, Andy. <laughs> if it makes you feel better. <laughs> Shit, um, going to waste. Still have it. <laughs> you, still, you still have the ticket. If ever you find yourself a time machine, do you think you'll just, like, go back? I'll just the make, ticket. put myself in Jersey. Just, <laughs> this will be the first yeah. thing I do. <laughs> Jersey, 2010. <laughs> yeah, perfect. But the, um, yeah, there's something complete about these, as you were saying, uh, Josh. And like, um, I remember thinking when they, when they steal the train and kind of like onwards from that, they have such a power, um, Doc and Marty at that point, they can change anything and kind of get away with it. They're kind of elevated mm-hmm. to this sort of like god status, um, where <laughs> like I think it's just like how how quickly like it's Eastwood Ravine. You see it like as soon as they as soon as he gets back, it's Eastwood. Yeah. Ravine. No one says it. We just see the sign, and it's like a second yeah. after he was in um, eighteen eighty five for us, and it's like oh yeah, they they can just change whatever they want now and fourth one like what are they gonna do like fight thanos like there's there's nothing for <laughs> yeah. them to do they're they're too powerful as time travelers jules and Vern um, as evil geniuses <laughs> yeah and and that's like the the cartoon i don't know if you've seen any of it andy but like it's it's Vern. i think steals the the delorean or the train one day and he starts having adventures because he's fallible with this stuff like he can mess up um and yet still i think he, he bumps into uh to an ancient tannin i think there's one every episode um and <laughs> that's really really funny like, yeah he's just like whether it's back in roman times i only saw the one episode i was like i'm, I'm checking out of this like this is it's just so funny like the animated series, and, and even part three to a point, implies that the Tannen is almost like an ele- elemental evil. Yeah. Or not even elemental evil, an elemental dick. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an elemental piece of shit. I know, he's yeah. just a scourge. Who's <laughs> always covered in shit. The ancient Tannens. He's just, uh, <laughs> he's, just... <laughs> he's tied to, to Hill Valley, and you can go to Hill Valley with yeah. any ether. There will be a Tannen, <laughs> and he will be the villain. Uh, there's nothing you yeah. can do. He's like a yeah. he's like a ghost, right? He's like this kind of uh, yeah um, recurring yeah. Um, Friday the Thirteenth type type horror villain. Um, you just no matter where you turn up, he will follow you <laughs> and call your butthead. <laughs> he will make you do his homework. They do this stupid joke. They do this thing where they go like um, he he calls Vern a not a butthead, but like they just switch out the words, right? So it's like a uh, knucklehead <laughs> yeah no it's like it's, it's literally they switch out butt and head for synonyms and Vern's like don't you mean butthead as if like he's growing up on these stories of what will happen if he time travels he will be a man <laughs> yeah. who looks like Biff and he will call him a butthead and he's like I'm pretty sure you mean butthead right now you meant to call me a butthead uh, it's, it's a very strange series <laughs> I can't believe they spirit like, like um, the Undermining the tannins. <laughs> yeah, just like uh, Gale and Zemeckis, they're like, nope, no sequels ever. We'll do a ride, fine. Yeah. But, like, Alan Silvestri recorded uh, new music for the ride. Yeah. It's like a, a four-minute song. Were involved in there, aren't they? <laughs> Damn. Yeah. 
like getting your getting the the writer to write it is one thing, but getting the composer to like take time yeah. out yeah, from yeah. presumably his actual job to, to write for a <laughs> for a film ride is uh, is quite impressive. But yeah, the, <laughs> that series it seems odd that they would say yes to that because it it doesn't really feel um, feel like it's got a good idea yeah. of what the the films are really about. I just had this when you said that Jules or or Vern had grown like obviously grown up on the stories of this asshole Biff because he knew the butthead thing. I had a horrible flash of a parallel universe in which the two Bobs weren't as protective over their IP, and there was a Ghostbusters Afterlife style legacy sequel <laughs> with uh, da, 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 <laughs> on a sad piano and a bunch of kids who <laughs> discover the old abandoned Emmett Mansion and the DeLorean therein, and oh, you have all these old actors trotted out. <laughs> oh God, I'm so I'm so so pleased that Bob Gale has apparently dedicated his life to safeguarding the Back to the Future. Um, yeah, world. And weren't you saying, Andy, it's in his will that even when he dies? Yeah, I, I did try looking that up basically. after the fact, and I, I couldn't find I couldn't find the breadcrumbs. Oh. But <laughs> I think that's something I've Damn. made up. Well, I choose to believe that's <laughs> real. You'd like to think, like, if if Walt Disney can protect with Mickey Mouse in like indefinitely, then yeah, yeah, Bob Gale should be able to prevent anyone from touching Doc and Marty forever. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I, I don't really. There's not really much much of a sense of the Back to the Future fandom. That's that's probably a good thing if you don't really know what they're like. And I guess I get the sense that everyone is like minded. There's nobody clamoring for a new Back to the Future. Everyone's very happy with what yeah. they have. You know, I, I don't feel like there's some braying garbage people Ghostbusters fandom. Because I, I do not doubt that it's it's something that Universal have every now and again just like checked in with the two Bobs and just gone like, uh, any any thoughts about this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about uh, letting us re-exhume? But uh, yeah, I I likewise agree that I think it's uh, it's only for the best that they've kept it as like yeah this yeah quite nice contained package <laughs> yeah oh. how, how do the two of you feel about like where this sits in the amblin canon because i'm sitting here mm. with this sense that it's for for me it's not amblin right like i i, I associate et obviously it's in the logo jurassic park mm-hmm. like that's of a piece with the john williams soundtrack and then some of these weirder films and like five or goes west that's got um, not Five or Goes West, the the other one, American Tale. Um, like these have a lot of Spielberg DNA in them, and mm-hmm. these kind of sit apart for me. Uh, I think it's it's its own thing, and yeah. I would mm-hmm. definitely think of it as a as a universal um, kind of hit, a, a universal hit, but also a capital U universal yes, blockbuster. Yes. <laughs> um, ahead of it being like an an Amblin production. What what do you think? Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree. It's almost as if, it, I hate to use the word brand again, it, it shows what a stupid 21st century Twitter addled boy I am. <laughs> but like, I think the the Back to the Future brand, the identity of it is so, so much stronger than its associations with the Amblin brand. But mm. I, th- I do agree. I think it, it, you look at it as more of a an independent entity than say an et which is so intrinsically linked to what we think of as amblin 
yeah. doesn't quite have that. And I think even like, yes, you've got the Steven Spielberg presents as the first bit of writing that you see for all three of these films. But like, I think because you, you, and it's fair to say for a lot of the filmmakers that we've uh, met along the way already, and I'm thinking particularly Dante as well, Joe Dante, um, but Robert Zemeckis does feel like he is his own uh, filmmaker who isn't quite like who isn't that interested in making a Steven Spielberg film. Uh, he's more like, yeah, look at something like Harry and the Henderson's, um, but <laughs> perfectly fine made film, but that is just ET, but with a Bigfoot in it. It's that yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. That's that kind of idea of where you are just seeing them kind of play with it as a kind of expectation of the sort of ingredients where, but with a filmmaker who has, who is as kind of more, distinct and singular like Zemeckis and it does come through as its own uh expression of him as a filmmaker and also a what like yes presented by Spielberg so it will always have that attachment and that kind of uh blockbuster expectation that you do get from having that a name like Spielberg attached but like they do exist as so much a part of just being a Zemeckis film Zemeckis films rather than like you say, mm-hmm. coming to fit a brand criteria or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to love him for that. I'm, <laughs> gonna I'm really going to miss these movies. And I'm going to miss Zemeckis too. Yeah, it's a lot really of Zemeckis enjoy one. that weird, crazy bastard. Have you got any any other... I feel like I'm spent. Yeah. Any other notes or like uh, bases you want to touch on? Both of you, before we go into some tweets and wrapping this wrapping this baby I, up, I did I did have a few. Um, so like I noticed, uh, I didn't know it was when when Seamus and um, and uh, the confusing Leah Thompson wife, which we didn't really get into the kind of gene pool of hell. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's a little bit it's a little bit strange. Um, but yeah, I was like, when what? They, that, what? what? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always it's always a bit odd. Um, it's like you're my you're my who are you? Um, <laughs> when he wakes up on the farm, but yeah, like when they're talking about William being the first one, like kind of um, kind of born in America, the first McFly born in America. I was like, oh, like there's a there's a touch of this being this sort of like immigrant story and this uh, this idea that actually the 1880s um, was a time when a lot of families arrived and uh, it made mm-hmm. me think of an American tale. So I, I looked up when <laughs> the Statue of Liberty is completed, um, which would kind of like give us a window of when American tale is supposed to be. And it's 1886. So Ooh. like huh. an American, an American tale and this like Western sequence of back to the future. They're happening around the same time. Fievel's <laughs> probably just off not somewhere. in the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like when Fievel goes west, he's he's narrowly missed them. Like <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah. will he see Seamus? Maybe Seamus and uh... Maggie, Mary, Maggie, Maggie, Maggie McFly. Will uh, they'll they'll be there somewhere doing their thing, wondering what frisbees are. <laughs> we'll have to keep, frisbees are. keep our eyes open. Maybe you see a flying train in the skyline. A Fievel goes west. Keep our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be far off. Wouldn't be far off. No. Yeah, I didn't enjoy that kind of tidbit. What's the meaning of that? <laughs> it's right there in front of. I him. think there's. 
there's just this fair few like 1955 licks that they get in as well um in those yeah. 10 minutes like the i think the the strongest one is like what are you talking about doc all the best stuff is made in Japan. And it's yeah. just like, it's yeah. like, oh my God. Like, casual xenophobia just coming in. Not to, <laughs> yeah, just, it's been 30 years, Doc. Like, you, you can't, you can't talk like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few of those, just like, they're, they're from a certain time period. Or, um, it's amazing to think these are, I don't know, this is a film of 1991, but it's set in 1985, like, all the characters are from that year um and just kind of watching them and thinking like is this a 1985 sensibility that i'm watching that like is this a marty mcfly that's really from um sorry 1985 um and yeah there's just a few moments within there where i'm like when is this doc from and when he's talking about like fun runs and it's like was that such a thing in 1985 but i did look it up (laughs) Um, apparently the run for fun run for fun what the hell kind of fun is that <laughs> uh, voice of one of the yeah. bullets yeah. I believe in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit <laughs> oh really yeah. <laughs> those three old guys they're, they're quite famous uh, yeah, they're, western actors aren't they I yeah old 50s and travels. 60s western actors are they're kind of there as a tip to the hat to the, the grassroots of this thing <laughs> yeah Pat Buttram, Henry Carey Jr., and Dub Taylor. Mm-hmm. Apparently, a couple, a couple of those guys are in a few old Ford movies, I believe, as well. So that really, that yeah, oh, wow, they're as good, good luck talismans. I feel for like going into this old west. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those guys in Monument Valley can't yeah. go far wrong. <laughs> One other thing I noticed on this run as well is like the um the the crime that biff a buford whatever he's called these days um the crime that he's arrested for is the robbing of pine city stage and i was like well, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I figure that's uh that's a nod to the old lone pine mall isn't it um mm-hmm. he's robbed the the 1885 body yeah the 85 <laughs> 1855 equivalent of uh peabody's farm <laughs> <laughs> Space bastard! <laughs> oh man, it's like a steam well, train. We're we know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that oh. when when Doc arrives in 1985 with his train. The first thing he says is, "Marty, it runs on steam." <laughs> we didn't have to get gasoline at all <laughs> yeah I know it's just like that's not what Marty was thinking in that moment it's like but Doc how's it it's like, I'll explain the science I'll explain the science and then we can hug they don't even hug they don't even shake hands or anything no, I'll just, just give you a little souvenir gives him a photo <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah such an odd man uh, no I just I love all these like slight odd, details odd family yeah off on his many yeah. adventures. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Brown, I brought this note back from the future and now it's a race. Of course it's a race. But what does that mean? It means your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. Both of you. We will, Doc! Stand back! 
All right, boys, back up! Hey, Doc! Where are you going now? Back to the future? Nope. Already been there. I think we know pretty well what the three of us think of of this film, but uh, have any of our listeners written in with their thoughts on the film, Andrew? Indeedy. I've got a... I'll kick kick us off with a uh, comment from Holmes Movie Podcast, at Holmes Movie Pod on Twitter. Uh, Probably the only other podcast out there in the world that's likely to have a young Sherlock Holmes episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They tweeted to say, the Back to the Future trilogy is one of our favourites. This film is pretty good and fun. Christopher Lloyd gives a great performance and it was nice to see him be the main focus instead of Marty. The love story aspect works. We are a little biased though as with this with this film as we love westerns. And that, that's good that's actually a good question actually. I didn't even think yeah. to ask you guys like do you love a western? Is that a part of this as well? Is like do you just oh, yeah. lo- bloody love a good western? Yeah. I bloody love a good western. It's just cool. <laughs> it's just cool, man. It's just cool and good. Good and cool. It's just cool. When I was a kid, I was really anti-western. I thought they were lame as hell. Stupid. Then I got older. And oh, they're so cool. <laughs> How about yourself, Robin? Uh, I'm on that. Uh, I'm on that transition right now that uh, Josh just talked about. Like I, until very recently, thought like, oh, westerns, uh, Americana, nonsense, blah, 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 blah. But I'm kind of, um, yeah, versing myself a little bit more. And I actually, I I watched this um, Back to the Future Part Three this morning, and then I was like, oh, like wh- which which western, like which uh, film is this uh, body plate thing from? Um, so I, this afternoon I watched a fistful of dollars for the first time, and I was like, "Okay, yeah, no, I get it. I, I see what's going on here." Cracking movie. Um, so yeah, sweet cool. little nightmare cool that movie. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a really yeah. sweet, uh, then quick ride, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then they immediately almost double in length after that. Okay. <laughs> Such great movies. The uh, soundtrack around there is so good as well. I'm a big fan of Morricone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Speaking of of Westerns in general, our boy Andy Peterson says, uh, generally I prefer this one to part two because it's a little more normal of a storyline, though I still think two is great. Love the very Hollywood old West setting that would feel right at home in Frontierland in Disneyland. Uh, So like you were saying, (laughs) very Disneyland kind of feel. As an aside, he also wants to mention a TV show from the mid-90s that has a similar Old West with a bit of sci-fi feel. The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., starring Bruce Campbell. Not Back to the Future quality throughout, but still very fun and clever. I've never heard of that. That sounds great. I like the ingredients, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You'd think that'd work. That'd make some good fodder. And then kind of on the reverse of that, our good friend Griff... uh, Message to say, like, he thinks uh, it's probably the weaker of the three, but that doesn't mean it's not a lot of fun. Just just feel with the first mm-hmm. two, there's always a bit more going, 
yeah, there was always going to be hard to top them, especially with the clever filmmaking in two. Uh, ZZ Top song is awesome. Uh, it's Double Back, <laughs> I believe, is the song that he's referring to. Or who knows, maybe it's the cantina music. That we've... <laughs> I like the spinning I the drum. I, I, I'm prepared to believe it's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I really want to watch that Bruce Campbell show now. <laughs> Briscoe. I feel like you could probably find that somewhere in a deep yeah. corner of the internet. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That about brings us up to, to speed of the Bats of the Future trilogy. Uh, it, it's it's going to be tough to say goodbye to this one. It's been a pleasure to go through these these three films and uh, <laughs> even more of a pleasure to have you joining us as well, Robin, for the final chapter in this trilogy. Thanks once again for joining us. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm happy to come on and talk about Back to the Future anytime you like. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. No problem at all, man. Where, where, where might the good people find you? If, uh, should they feel so inclined to? I, don't, I know you're you're similarly quite uh, uh, active on Letterbox as well as uh, as us too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can uh, you can find my Letterbox. Uh, I'm sure via via these guys. Um, I'm loath to remember a username right now. Um, or you can find me on on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you'll put all the links in the in the we old uh, descriptions. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 link you up. We'll link you the hell up. And uh, in our next episode, we'll be diving back into another sequel as we're getting reacquainted reacquainted with those pesky gremlins in Joe Dante's Gremlins Two: <laughs> The New Batch. Very excited. Oh, for this man. One. I'm so excited to go back sequels. to this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, if you fancy watching yeah. the film along with us, but don't happen to have it on disc, it is available to stream for those of you that have a Sky Go, Now Cinema, or Virgin Go subscription. But alternatively, you can also rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chili, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Rakuten TV, Sky Store, and YouTube. I've really missed the way you roll your R's when I you know. say you're recruiting. You didn't do it last up. episode. You missed it. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, if you have any thoughts on the Gremlins 2, the new batch, please tweet us at RamblinAmblin or email us. Email us. Mouthful of marbles here. Email us at <laughs> RamblinAboutAmblin at gmail.com. And speaking of Gremlins 2 on Twitter, do you guys follow the Institute of Gremlins yeah. 2 studies on Twitter? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> have you ever seen it, Rob? No, no what is that? It's so it's like it's like a, a pseudo-intellectual account that's sort of every tweet is so <laughs> it's some um What's the word I'm looking for? Some thesis statement about the academic merits of Kremlin's two the new badge. It's absolutely it's fascinating. Really, really <laughs> it's great. I imagine I'm going to be quoting uh, many so. a tweet from that in the in the next episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this will also be our last episode before the Christmas and New Year period. So uh, it only uh, mm-hmm. only thing that's left to say is a. Uh, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a, a very Happy New Year and hope that uh, you, you manage to have a, a as good a one as you can this year. I know times are still strange, but like hope that once again that, like as we said last year, that you have plenty of festive cheer and also plenty of movies. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, Take her easy, gang. Yeah. Uh, thank you once again for joining us, Robin. 
Um, I've been Andy Godian. I've been Joshua Glenn. And, and together I've been we Robin have James Kerrison. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do guests not get to do one? No, 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 they can. No one's done it, like oh. jumped in yet before. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to let it be. I, I've also got a name. <laughs> I feel like I fell asleep on a train and somebody rudely woke me up, and I'm very confused. And I'm, I'm off balance, and I don't know what comes next now. <laughs> all right, sorry. Do it over. Do it over. <laughs> no, keep it all in. Do it again. He's been Robin James Harrison. Uh, and all together. And that guy's Joshua Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> and all together, we've been rambling and ambling podcast all about Back to the Future Part 3. Merry Christmas, a happy new year, and we'll see you all in the future. Goodbye. <laughs>